Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hey, y'all. I'm Emily. I'm a Covenant community member here at The Well. Um, I attend the Brentwood CG, and I serve in the coolest with student ministry. Um, Today we're going to be in Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through as he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Syriza. This is the word of the Lord. What's up? Good morning. Um, My name is Chris Henry. I am get the privilege of serving as one of your elders here at the well. I also serve on the worship team, so you typically see me over there. Now I'm over here. Um, yeah, super excited to chop it up with y'all this morning. Um, as a church, we've been in a, a mini-series called uh, The Sacrifices of Many, and we've kind of been exploring a lot of what we would call invisible leaders in the scriptures people who are a little lesser known. Last week, Tori talked about uh, Rufus and how some of the sacrificial decisions that Rufus and his father made and his mother led to the betterment of the kingdom of God at large. Um, And today, we're going to be talking about sacrificial obedience. Somebody say obedience. Obedience. We're talking about obedience. But before we jump into all of that, I, I I have a little story to share. Not really a story, but just some, just some insight about who I am. I love to cook. I love to cook. I like to cook for people. I like to cook for myself. And I like to cook good food. I feel like I'm a pretty good cook. I feel like I know 
how to season food. I feel like I know how to prepare it. I feel like I even have a good understanding of different cultures, food groups, and the different ingredients that it will take to accomplish what the cultures bring to the table. But I must admit, even though I have a lot of confidence in my own cooking abilities, sometimes I cheat and consult a recipe. <laughs> I know. Gasp. Thanks, Paul. Um, I sometimes like to know what a chef might have in their brain and, and how a chef spend so much time intentionally gathering ingredients and testing them out, and they have this master plan for what this meal could be. They are intentional. They, they, they have a thought for how the meal should look. They have a thought for how the meal should smell, or what it should taste like, and who should enjoy it. And every recipe, the chef is kind of putting that out into the world and inviting normal people like you and like me to participate in creating something beautiful. But a lot of times when I'm looking at these recipes, I still like to rely on my own laurels, my own ability to cook, my own ability to season food, and I kind of do what the chef intended me to do, but I'm kind of doing my own thing at the same time. And then at the end, I get to the meal that I prepared, and it doesn't look like what the chef intended, and it doesn't look like what I want it to look like, and I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated and I'm hungry because I don't like to eat bad food, and I just discard it. But I think about these chefs, and I'm like, ah, dang it, maybe I should have given that recipe the full go because that chef has that master plan and he's inviting normal people like you and me to participate in that, in that producing of that food. And we're in church, so obviously this is a spiritual story. I think that God is like a master chef. And I think that God has this master plan, this master recipe, this design for how the life of the believer should look and, and his plan to redeem the world. And he's inviting normal people like you and myself to participate in it. And our obedience to that plan is our entry into that. Are y'all tracking with me? That God is, is designing and creating something beautiful. And a lot of times people like myself choose not to follow it. And I end up missing out on the beautiful thing, the fruit of my efforts that he would have me do. I end up missing out. I wonder if some of y'all feel like this in your own spiritual lives, that you've chosen at times not to follow in the, the master plan of the Lord and thereby you're missing out on what the good chef intended for you to enjoy. Maybe... Maybe you're missing out on the community that God intended for you to enjoy because he, he has designed his kingdom to be full of his family and that his family would fellowship with one another. And so even in, even in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25, he says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And so you find yourself lonely because you are not participating in the plan of God. Are you tracking with me? Or maybe you're not obedient to God's design for conflict resolution. And you find yourself enslaved by the pangs of a grudge because you're unwilling to forgive. You're unwilling to extend the same forgiveness that has been extended to you by God himself. And so you find yourself in fractured relationships. 
Or maybe you haven't been obedient to God's design for creating and making disciples. Because he says in, in, in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. Maybe you just don't feel like you have the stuff to measure up to make disciples, and so you're missing out on the good fruit of new life in Christ and others. I don't know. But I I do know this. I, I want us to be a church that understands God's plan. I want us to be a church that understands God's plan, and I want us to experience the joy of following that plan. I want us to experience the goodness of obedience and to taste the good fruit that it will produce in our lives. I have one, I have one main point today, one, one thesis, so to speak, and it's this. It's that the believer's obedience is what leads to the fruit of God's plan. That your participation in God's plan comes from obedience to his word and to his spirit. And he desires good for us. He desires us to take part in a beautiful meal that he has crafted, that he so intentionally designed. And so, obviously, our first task this morning is to understand what God's plan is. What God's plan is in Acts chapter 8. We, we've talked about the eunuch and, and Philip. What's, what's going on? What's God's plan? That song by Drake is in my head. Guys, they wish and they wish and now. Y'all know that song. I feel like Tori references hip-hop all the time, so I can too. So what's God's plan? What, what does the master chef have cooking? I know that this story um, is, it starts in Acts. starts in Acts chapter 8 that we read today, but I don't believe that's where God's plan actually starts for, for the eunuch and for Philip. I think that the story of God, the plan of God, the design of God, the, the master recipe, so to speak, actually starts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before we get to Acts chapter 8. In Scripture, we have to understand that God has a plan, and, and even in as far back as uh, Exodus 19, he talks about he wants to use the people of Israel, his family at that time, to be a kingdom of priests to go out to the nations that are surrounding them and draw them to himself. In Psalm 68, verses 29 and 31, he says, Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Nobles shall come from Egypt, and Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Just a side note, in, in, in Scripture, Cush uh, is a kingdom that is referenced that is kind of south of uh, Egypt and inhabits parts of Sudan and parts of Ethiopia, modern-day Ethiopia. So Cush is referring to this African kingdom there. And what the psalmist is prophesying is that some people, this nation of Cush is going to come to Jerusalem and worship God. This is part of God's plan. In Isaiah chapter 2, It says that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Y'all tracking with God's plan? He's, He's planning for the nations to come 
to Jerusalem. That's where his presence is. His presence is in the temple, and he desires for the nations to come and to worship and to be united to his presence. In Isaiah chapter 18, um, I'm going to focus on, on, chapter, uh, on verse 7. It says that, At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, from a nation mighty and conquering, whose lands the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. This is an oracle concerning the kingdom of Cush. And so Isaiah is prophesying that there's going to be a time when this, a people from this nation come to Jerusalem, bringing tribute and to worship the, the name. Are y'all tracking with God's plan? That this is, we're in Acts, but it's something that's happened in motion from a long time before we get to Acts. It's this theme that the Lord is drawing the nations to himself, that he desires for his presence, for them to be a part of his temple, to experience his presence. Specifically, God is planning to draw this kingdom of Cush to Jerusalem, to the place where his presence dwells in order to worship him. So God has a plan, and, and we're starting to get some hints of that. And so we're coming to the book of Acts, where we're, we're coming through time from, you know, three, 400 B.C. to about 30 A.D., and we're picking up God's plan and his story in the book of Acts. And so what's, what's God's plan in the book of Acts, right? Somebody say, what's God's plan? Well, I'll tell you. Thanks for asking. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we start to see God's plan take another, another, another push forward here. He's going to use his family to reach folks who are not yet family with the good news of Jesus, his son. And so similar idea to what happened in the Old Testament where he wanted his kingdom of priests to go out and draw the nations to himself. Now God is saying, I'm going to put my spirit within my people. You are going to be my temple and you are going to take my presence to the nations to draw them to myself. Are y'all tracking with me? Do you, do you know that for the person who has put their faith in Christ that God makes your body now a temple? That this, it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that your body is now the temple of the Lord. Or in Romans chapter 6, it says that the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now living in you. And so God plans to use his own family to go out and draw people to himself. And if we take a step back for a moment and we survey what's going on, this is Luke writing to the Gentiles about God's plan in Acts. And the early readers who are reading Luke's account of God's plan would be probably starting to get a little bit intrigued at what's going on as we get to our story today. Because what, what seems as though God was after these nations and after these large groups of people seemed to kind of zero in on the eunuch. It seemed that God was going after crowds. In Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people were saved one day after Peter preached. And in Act, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, 
Philip is going into Samaria and crowds of people were coming and following him and and declaring their faith in Jesus and he was healing people. And so we see crowds and we see nations, we see thousands of people, but then we get to the book of Acts and it zeroes in, it shifts to focus on this one person. And so I think the early readers, as they're reading this text, would be a little puzzled. They might be a little confused. I think they'd be a little bit anticipatory as to why God's plan is shifting from these large groups of people to zero in on this one person. So we have to ask a question. Who is the eunuch? Say, who is the eunuch? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. That's part of my job today. Well, we obviously know from the text that the eunuch, he's Ethiopian. This guy, he's Ethiopian. He's from that ancient kingdom of Cush. We can also know that um, he's a high power guy. The, The scripture says that he was in charge of the queen's treasury. And one thing I know is that power follows money. So he was a powerful guy. He was a wealthy guy. He was very wealthy. I mean, he was in a chariot. That was the ancient whip, the scat pack of the day. He had people driving his chariot. We'll see that later in the story. And he was also in possession of a scroll. I don't know if you guys knew this, but uh, we have Bibles today. We have printers. It's pretty easy to print stuff. But back then, it was the job of a scribe to write out the scriptures And so somebody full-time, 60 hours a week, just spending writing out the scriptures, they were expensive. So my man had enough money to be able to buy his own personal set of, some temples didn't even have their own sets of scrolls. And he had a personal set of scrolls for himself. So he was Ethiopian. He was a high power guy, a lot of money. Uh, He was was likely a proselyte. I know that's a a weird word, but he was likely a, a convert to Judaism. The reason why I say that is because the text says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so you have this Ethiopian guy, a foreigner, someone who was not uh, centered in the people of God in that day. He He traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles over days, over many different types of terrain to come to Jerusalem to worship. And the interesting, interesting thing about that is that he was a foreigner. And so in the religious setup of that day, There was uh, the outer courts of the temple, there were the inner courts, and then there was the Holy of Holies. Because he was Ethiopian, this was as close as he could get to the presence of God at that time, that he could only participate in the religious activities of that day from this far away, that he would come that long distance to worship and be reminded that you are still don't have the stuff to be close to God. That you, you can desire to be a religious participant, but you're still going to be on the outside. He was a proselyte. And then we get to the, the glaring elephant in the room. He was a eunuch. He was a eunuch. He was described by his eunuchness. Not his uniqueness, but his uniqueness. <laughs> And I, and I know that that's a strange term that many of us might not know what a eunuch is, so I will help you. Uh, a eunuch, this might be a little graphic for some, but it was a man in that time, eunuchs were castrated. 
their, their, their male parts were removed for the purpose of them devoting their life to serving the monarchy at that time. It was often not a voluntary thing, but something that was enacted upon them. So he was almost, he was almost a force. He was forced into serving the queen at that time. The, 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 the thing that I want you to know about his uniqueness is that he doesn't have a name. We refer to him as the eunuch. He doesn't have a name. And in that day, a name was a big deal. It was, it was almost like uh, your reputation. Now, the idea of creating a name for yourself was paramount to the ancient person. That the, the main objective of an ancient man was to build wealth and have kids and to pass that wealth on to those kids. And by doing that, that man would make a name for themselves. Hashem, the name. It's, it's such a big deal. It's such a, the name is such a big deal that in the Old Testament, in, in Deuteronomy, there was laws in place that if your brother died, it was your responsibility to go and, and, and take up your brother's wife and to have a, a male child with your brother and that that child would actually belong to your brother and take your brother's name so that his name would not be blotted out from history. The name was so important in history that God even made a command not to take his name in vain. Then I don't know if y'all, the, the name was so important in history that Abraham in Genesis, when God made a promise to him that he was going to have children and, and it seemed like that promise was not going to come to fruition, Abraham complained to God and said, I am not going to have a name in history. I don't have anyone in my household to leave my possessions to. I only have Eliezer from Damascus. Are you going to give me a child so that my name can continue on? And we obviously know by the story that God does, and he says, I'm going to make your name great, etc. But the name is a big deal. And the eunuch does not have any ability to have kids of his own. And so he does not have a name. That's what the author is trying to communicate to us, that he is, he is a hopeless man, that he cannot be fully a man in this society. His manness was actually cut off. His ability to have kids was cut off. His ability to make a name for himself was cut off. He wasn't able to be a part of the religious activities during that time. That was cut off. The eunuch is hopeless. It was almost even mean, the culture of that time, because they would refer to eunuchs as dry trees because they knew that they couldn't produce any kids. How, 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 how cruel is that? He was only known by his uniqueness. And I think the readers of this text at the time that it was written would begin to pick up on the hopelessness of this man. They would see his, 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 his prominent stature in society, but they would also see the depths of the brokenness that is his reality. I think that they would have seen it, these unlovely parts of the story, and they, they would begin to attach their own experiences to the eunuchs. That they would begin to see themselves, and maybe they might have been the product of abuse growing up, 
and they are scarred and marred with the painful and physical memories of that abuse, similar to the eunuch. Maybe they would think, me too, I, I have a good job, I'm a prominent person in society, but I'm confused and I desire to be a part of the religious institutions, but I'm, I too am just confused at what the scriptures say. I find myself surrounded by my wealth, but I'm confused. Or, or maybe somebody in that day would think, I grew up in a really religious, conservative context, but I still feel like an imposter every time I go up to worship. What about you? What, 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 what parts of your story do you identify with? What parts of your story remind you of the hopeless situation of the eunuch? Maybe you yourself have suffered from some abuse. Maybe you yourself have, have been wounded by a church or by a religious institution and have been made to feel like an outsider. What about you? I think the early people would have began to see the makeup of who this person is and the hopelessness of their situation, but then they would remember where this is fitting in to God's plan and God's story because God is a God who has a plan and he is pursuing the eunuch throughout history and throughout time and it is culminating right here, right before our eyes. The early readers of this text would have been anticipating what happens next. What will be the end of this hopeless man? What happens next? Somebody say, what happens next? I will tell you. What happens next is that we see that the master chef has been making up this plan, and then he invites a man named Philip into it. He invites Philip into it by sending an angel to Philip and saying, go into this desert place. This is, a, this is a desert place. Go into this place that is hopeless and disparate, a place where there is no life. And, and, and Philip responds to the call of God and he goes. And then the spirit of God tells Philip to go to this chariot. And what does Philip do? He runs. He runs. He runs. I think that Philip has an intimate knowledge and acquaintance with, with the command that Jesus said before in the beginning of Acts to, to, to go into, my, my spirit's going to come and I want you to go to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. And so Philip having that understanding of God's plan and knowing the gravity of God's plan and what it could mean to be obedient to God's plan and knowing that being obedient to God's plan is going to yield fruit, he runs. I pray that we would run in obedience to whatever God's spirit tells us to. So he runs because the Lord is intentionally pursuing the eunuch. And he's pursuing the eunuch throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophet Isaiah, throughout all the texts, throughout all of the eunuch's pain and struggles. And he invites Philip into that pursuit of the eunuch. What an honor! What an honor to be a part of what God is already doing. And so Philip runs over and he sees the eunuch and hears the eunuch reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And 
Philip asked the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch says, no. Does, is, is, the pro, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? I, I don't know what's going on. And the truth of the matter is, Scripture can be very confusing. I don't know if you ever approached the Bible and there's all these different literary forms and there's all these different, you know, allegories and parables and images, and it's just confusing. I pray that we will be a people who are humble enough that when we get to something that's confusing in Scripture, we throw up our hand for help. And I, and I, and I know that the Lord is going to provide somebody who is being obedient to his plan that will come alongside us and help us to understand his word. And so the eunuch is asking for help, and Philip begins to explain what's happening in the scripture. And it says that beginning with this text, beginning with Isaiah 53, Philip explains the good news of Jesus. The peculiar thing is in Isaiah 53, it's talking about the suffering servant. It's painting this image of a servant that is going to suffer. And it says in Isaiah 53, verse 11, that the righteous one, my servant, is going to make many to be counted as righteous as he bears their iniquities. And so what, what this is saying is that the suffering servant, who we all know is Jesus, is going to come and he's going to bear the iniquities of people. Essentially, he's going to come and he's going to suffer the punishment that he deserved and he's going to take on their sin and he's going to be crucified and he's going to bear that penalty and now you are not counted as unrighteous because of it. This is, this is a good, this is good news, right? But this is only part of the news. That it's only part of the gospel, it's only part of the gospel. It, the part of the gospel that a lot of people say is the entire gospel is that you, you get a get out of hell free card. It's good news. It's something to shout about, but it's only part of it. Somebody say, keep reading. I will. I think that Philip told the eunuch, you got to keep reading in this expensive scroll that you have. Because if you keep reading, there is more good news. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 56. This is just a part of the way down the scroll that I think the, the eunuch was reading, right? Isaiah 56, focusing on verse 3 through 5, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, that the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That God is screaming through his word to the eunuch who doesn't have a name that I will give you a name. That you are a foreigner, but you're not going to be cut off from my people. To a man who is hopeless, God is saying, have hope. Don't say that you're a dry tree. I'm coming for you. I think that if we, if we don't keep reading in scripture, we're going to miss out on so much. 
that God can meet you in scripture in the place that you desire to see him the most, in the place that you have experienced the most hopelessness and the most pain that God can meet you there in his word. And Philip gets to witness this. Because of Philip's obedience, he gets to participate in seeing the plan of God come to fruition. He's seeing God open up this man's world. I don't think that's, that's all that's, that's there, though. That's just the appetizer. Because if we keep going, we see that the eunuch and Philip continue on the road. And then they come to some water. And then the eunuch says, see, here's being a follower of Christ. That baptism is how you show yourself to be marked as a person who is following Jesus. And to a eunuch who has been only allowed to participate in this much worship, he's only been allowed to come to this part of the religious gathering. He hasn't been able to get so close. How excited would he be to be able to participate in obedience to God's plan and be baptized. What prevents me from being baptized is what the eunuch said. The answer is clearly nothing because they both go down to the water and the eunuch is baptized. And so my question for you today is, what prevents you from being baptized? I have double meaning with that question. For those of you who have professed faith in Jesus, who have claimed to be a follower of God, one of the commands for his followers is to be baptized. And so what prevents you from being baptized? Or for those of you who have been baptized, if you think about your life, what is the scripture or God's spirit calling you to be in obedience to as part of his plan? What is preventing you? What are the things that get in your way of following God's plan? For me, I don't want to follow the chef's recipe because I think that I can do it on my own. I think I know how to season food. I think I know how food should taste. But we know, like I said earlier, that I end up frustrated and hungry still, and I just end up upset. The things that prevent me are my pride. What's what's preventing you? I think... I I can understand how what I'm saying might be a little confusing. I'm asking you to be obedient to to God's plan, to know what God's plan is. But now I'm saying that there's these things that are preventing you from being a part of God's plan. And it's true. I am saying that. It It is a confusing moment. God does have a plan that he's inviting you to participate in. But there are things at times that prevent us from being obedient. Let me tell you this. Obedience is actually spiritual warfare. Obedience is spiritual warfare, that there are things inside of yourself and outside of yourself that are preventing you, that are fighting against you, that are warring against you from being obedient to the plan of God. In Genesis chapter 3, we see as Eve is in the garden looking for something to eat, participating in the plan of God, that the serpent comes. And what does he do? He tempts her to be disobedient to God. Obedience is spiritual warfare. We see Paul talk about this in in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 18, 
Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. So from these two texts, we see that there are these external enemy type of spiritual forces that are preventing our obedience. And then Paul highlights here that there are these internal type of forces that are preventing our obedience, our own sin nature. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that this sin nature is, is of the spirit of the sons of disobedience, that there is something that we've inherited from our sin nature that prevents us, that is, marks us as sons of disobedience. And so it seems that I'm asking you to be obedient, but there are things that are preventing us. So, 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 so what now? Who is going to help us? Who is, somebody say, who is going to help us? I'll tell you. It's Jesus. Remember that I said that the gospel is not just good news about your position in being righteous with God now, but the gospel actually gives us the power to be obedient. How does this work? Allow me to explain. Jesus was a man who was born of the Spirit. And so he was not born a son of disobedience, but he was a son of obedience. Jesus is the true and better obedient one. Like Philip, Jesus too found himself in a desert place, in the wilderness. And like Eve, Satan came to tempt Jesus, saying, can you turn this rock into bread? But what did Jesus say? He said, I'm not going to take that and eat it like, you ate, like Eve ate the apple or ate the fruit. He said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that I am going to live in obedience. I'm going to live by every word that comes out of God's mouth. Jesus knew and understood God's plan. But just like us, there were times because he had a nature like ours in the sense that he was a man, there were times that he didn't want to follow God's plan. Somebody gasp. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, the scripture details for us that he was sweating drops of blood because he was so anxious and had so much anxiety about God's plan. And he asked God if there would be any other way, if, if your plan could have another turn in this that would not end in me going to the cross, can that happen? Let this cup pass from me. And the father said, there's no other way. That there is only obedience. And Jesus knew that the father's plan would not end in a good fruit, in a good meal, but it would end in sour wine and in vinegar while he was there on the cross. Jesus was delivered to be crucified, and, and he was. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. And they hung him on a dry tree. Jesus died. In Philippians chapter 2, they said that, it says that Jesus was obedient until the point of death. 
Obedience was his life. He was a perfect example of obedience. And he made a way for us to walk in his, his example. And so what, what's God's plan? How, how are we going to walk in the same obedience that Jesus did? How are we going to follow the chef, the chef, master chef's plan? How are we going to be someone that participates and like a good believer is, someone who experiences the fruit of obedience? I will tell you. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not just that you have been made righteous with God. That is true. But the gospel says that you are now empowered by the spirit that is now at work within you if you have professed faith in Jesus to be obedient to God's plan. What prevents you from being baptized? What prevents you from being obedient? There are external forces, yes, but the gospel says that he has given you his very own spirit to empower your obedience. This is the good news of Jesus. He is the obedient one that makes a way for us to follow in his obedience. And where religion would say, run. There's this quote that I love. It says, run, John, run. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings It bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel gives you the very stuff that you need to be obedient to the very thing that God commands you to do. This is good news. And so when you are struggling to participate in God's plan through obedience, call on Jesus. His spirit will help you. When you are struggling to forgive, call on Jesus. When you are struggling to muster up the courage to attend community group, call on Jesus. When you are struggling to tithe, call on Jesus. When you are struggling to make disciples, call on Jesus. When you are struggling to raise your kids that are, that are terrorizing your household and you desire to follow God's plan to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, call on Jesus. He has power to help you. The gospel makes it clear that God has not only saved you, but he has given you his spirit to empower your obedience. obedience. God, who is the master chef, desires that you would experience the goodness of his master recipe. The believer's obedience is what leads to the fruit of God's plan. I pray that we would be a church, that we would be a people that participates, that responds to God's invitation to participate in his plan. His plan carries forward. That there are people today, maybe in this room, who are, find themselves in a wilderness type of place like the eunuch did, confused, hopeless. And the Lord is inviting some in here, all in here, to participate in his plan to redeem 
the world to himself, to redeem the nations to himself, to redeem people who are hopeless to himself. Let us pray. God, we thank you, we thank you that when we were lost, you found us. That when we were powerless to be obedient on our own, you made a way for us to be obedient in Christ. We thank you for seeing us in our brokenness, for seeing us in the positions that we were helpless to help ourselves and making a way. We thank you for the people who you've placed in our lives that have pointed us to the word and pointed us to the truth in scripture. I pray that as you are bringing things to our mind, Holy Spirit, to be obedient to you, that we would walk and respond to your invitation. And we would walk in obedience in those things. I pray that you would empower us all in that, Jesus. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.